Andre Brink is the author of 16 novels in English, including A Dry White Season, The Rights of Desire, The Other Side of Silence, and most recently The Blue Door. He has won South Africa's most important literary prize, the CNA Award, three times and has twice been shortlisted for the Booker. His novels have been translated into 30 languages. Welcome to the Bibliophile. <laughs> Thank you. I'd like to start with the most famous opening line in French literature. <laughs> Mother died today, or maybe yesterday. Mm-hmm. And the shocking indifference that that showed. Absolutely. I just wonder if that reflects your sentiments about your parents. No, not at all. Not at all. No, I think the relationship between Camus and his parents, and obviously between uh, his character and his mother, uh, is very different from, from mine. Even though with time I've started realizing the enormous distance that there used to be between my father and myself. At the time, that relationship was dominated at least by very good intentions and by warmth and family feeling. And between my mother and myself, the relation has always been a very, very rewarding and mutually stimulating one. So you didn't feel that what you had done with the novel looking on darkness as a rejection of what your parents stood for? In what way would you say would you qualify that? Your father was a magistrate and uh, had his version of justice, but it was just white justice. Mm -hmm. Uh, There was a different kind of justice for for the blacks. And there was even... um, I'm not sure exactly what it was called, an immorality act. That's right. Which had people having to catch whites and blacks in the act of intercourse, Mm. the the state hiring peeping toms, basically. Yeah. But all of this was condoned, and I suppose your father was part of the establishment. Very much so, And so uh, what I'm suggesting, and particularly in this looking on darkness, is that there is interracial sexual Mm. relationship, almost the most shocking thing that you could have written about. Oh, absolutely, yes. That situation also illuminated the uh, the direct link between sexuality and uh, the security police, who normally were supposed to occupy themselves with threats to state security. But since the entire policy of the National Party at the time was based on uh, racial purity and the separation of the nations or the the national groups, the moment there was a sexual relationship across these frontiers meant that you found yourself on a direct collision course with the essence of what the entire policy of that party was based on. And so the security police became interested in one. Yeah, it was quite a tough sort of world in which one suddenly found oneself. These laws were basically going against human nature. There was a lot of sexual interaction between whites and blacks, just Mm -hmm. as Mm -hmm. evidenced in all the coloured... Oh, absolutely. So there's the the plain evidence. Mm. Completely, yes. Uh, One of the criticisms about what you've written is that you go for these hot buttons Mm. intentionally... Yes, I think one can say that, because uh, ever since my eyes were opened, 
for what was really happening in this country, what the foundation was on, on which the whole political system had been constructed. Obviously, I started targeting those points where I thought the weak and bare underbelly of the system was most exposed. Mm -hmm. Your eyes were opened as a result of living in France. That's right. And it's uh, almost shameful to have to admit that, but while I was living in South Africa as a child, as a youngster, a teenager, a student, even a postgraduate student, I found myself in such an enclave of the comfort zone of Afrikaners, surrounded only by, not just by whites, but by Afrikaners in the tiny little villages in which I grew up, that there was practically no exposure to another form of living, another form of thinking. And during my whole youth, until I was 20-odd years old, I had, for instance, never met a single black person who was not a laborer or a servant or something of that nature. It hardly ever occurred to me that a black person could be a, an attorney or a doctor or a teacher, for that matter. Or erudite or uh, exactly. well-read. Yes. So it was only when, after my seven years at the small white university in this country, I went to Paris and there for the first time found myself in a position where I could normally mix with students from the rest of the world, including quite a large number of black students, that I discovered the nature of that wider world. And it disproved your previous experience. Totally. And at that very moment, within a couple of months of my arriving in Paris as a student, there occurred the Charpville Massacre. Uh, which, especially when perceived from such a distance of a distance of 10,000 kilometers, drove home to me very forcibly and shockingly exactly what the nature of my unnatural society was. Getting back to the strong familial ties that you had mm. with your, your parents and this moral obligation that you felt you needed as a responsible individual to do something about the situation in your own society. Mm. We actually haven't mentioned the fact that you've recently just published a memoir uh, called Fork in the Road, where you talk about your father blackmailing you, basically, not wanting you to give a eulogy at a funeral. That's right, yes. And it seems to me that uh, there's two pretty important forces in your life that are butting up against each other, and your familial ties are the ones that that determined how you acted? In particular, in particular contexts and particular situations, yes. Uh, very soon after my return from Paris, we had no choice but to have a family meeting and deliberately confront this uh, situation and to take a conscious decision that we will simply never discuss politics in this house. And we more or less kept to that. But at the same time, that did leave me free to, to write what I wanted to write about. And outside of the direct familial contact, to uh, get involved in whatever I felt attracted to getting involved in. Do you think that has something to do with the Calvinist capacity to compartmentalize one's life? 
Yes, to what extent that was a natural tendency in my psychological makeup, but to what extent that was reinforced by Calvinism, uh, which undoubtedly had an enormous influence on the whole structuring of my life, I'm not so sure, but certainly that was exactly what happened. I wonder uh, if you could then talk about the paradox that your father was, on one hand, dispensing justice and turning a blind eye to the beatings and the, the murder of young blacks. And in fact, you talk about one situation where a young man comes to him and mm. he basically just says, go back, screw off, go back to the police. And mm-hmm. What are your sentiments toward your father when it comes to that? Very, very ambiguous. Because at the time, he was also the, the godlike figure in my immediate uh, setup. I had a tremendous respect for him. And even in the context of the dispensation of, of justice, uh, he had a reputation as a naturally just person. The extent to which that sense of justice in him was predetermined, defined, and in many respects curtailed by the apartheid regime was not always so obvious on the surface. His natural inclination, my impression at the time was, to do the just thing. But then what was just in his context, of course, was very largely predicated on on white and black. Was he a man of his time? Very much so. But incapable of moving beyond those limitations? I'm afraid occasionally I had the impression that he was trying to arrive at a sort of larger, broader, slightly more liberal, to use the word that was anathema at the time, understanding of human relations but uh, but basically he very very seldom transcended that because he was not only a supporter of the Afrikaner regime he was a member of the Bruderbond the band of brothers that was the sort of eminence grise behind the throne with determined policy and determined appointments at schools and all the important uh, legislative and other Uh, organizations in the country Uh, so he was very much involved by that and that certainly ensured that to a very large extent he remained blinkered and his view of the world remained uh, very very severely restricted but there must have been a tremendous constant war going on inside him Mm. because as I said his natural inclination was to be humane in his approach of relations among humans. And this is something that uh, didn't exist in you? Initially, I think, yes, it did. It, it took uh, 24 years until I actually went to Paris mm. and discovered the reality of that larger world surrounding mine, mm-hmm. really to be forced to acknowledge to myself that the whole world as it had been constructed around me, Mm. was wrong, was unacceptable, and had to be rejected, which was a devastating experience, having to turn against everything that I had simply uh, accepted as as completely normal. And something your father, who you revered... Exactly, yes. ...was uh, wedded to. Yes. uh, But once I'd taken that step, then, of course, it was inevitable to stop there. I had to go on and uh, pursue this uh, line of thinking to its logical consequences. 
which took courage to uh, face the rejection both of your father and also oh, yes. the community. Oh, much of that was very, very hard to take. Mm. But I think having assessed the situation at the outset, I realized more or less, certainly not in all the detail and the full extent of it, but I realized that that would put me on a collision course with my, my whole society and that if I felt really deeply convinced that this was the way I had to go, I knew that I had to expect that and to prepare myself mentally, psychologically, whatever, to face that. So even when there were tough moments after that, uh, at least up to a point I was more or less prepared for that sort of thing and uh, I felt I could do nothing else. I had to persevere. One of the psychological responses to the relationship with the father, if it's ambiguous, uh, my relationship was somewhat ambiguous with my father. Mm. I became closer with him toward the end of his life after some years of estrangement. Mm. And so there's a, there's that dichotomy. And the rea- my reaction when he died, I suffered a, a depression. I just wonder uh, how you reacted to his death. It was very, very hard to uh, work through that, to, to, to face that. But at the same time, by that time, he was, he was already 88 when he died. Mm-hmm. So for many years, we had been on our separate courses, and I had seen where he was going, and I more or less knew where I was heading for. And my father died very suddenly, so it was quite mm-hmm. a shock. Yours was more of a, a longer, drawn-out... Exactly, yes. Mm-hmm. So there was time, there were many years, to try and uh, get used to the idea that on certain levels we would never arrive at an understanding. On other levels, simply because of increasing age, he was probably softening a bit around the edges, mellowing a bit. And perhaps I could try at least to be more understanding, more forgiving, Though the distance remained, but there was a gradual readiness to make allowances for the other within the the, the context of family ties and so on. I mean, I I, I could understand and condone some of the things that he believed and accepted, which I wouldn't uh, have done in any other situation as far as anybody else was concerned. But because of the family ties, I was prepared to... nothing I could do to change him at this day. And uh, what, what, what perhaps made things a little bit easier was the position of my mother, uh, because I'd always been very close to her, and she was a sort of person in the middle. She was very close to him and very loyal to him, but at the same time, perhaps because I was the firstborn and it was a difficult birth, and so we did grow very close together. Uh, she went out of her way to try and understand what I was doing, what I believed in, and to try and make him see why I was doing certain things, and to try and make me understand why he was reacting in a certain way. So that, uh, within the family context, did make it a bit easier to simply to get along. Mm I just wonder, is it possible to write a novel that that isn't political? I don't think it is. Mm -hmm. It would depend on the context. 
But it, well, it would also depend on the, uh, the view and the context that the uh, observer brings to the situation. But I certainly think that, especially in the context of South Africa, it is just not possible to write anything that is, does not bear a very heavy load of politics. Yeah, I mean, the fact that your memoir is published during the current election is, is a statement in itself. The timing as much as content. Yes, although that was, that was really <laughs> a kind of accident. I didn't deliberately want it to coincide with that. When I set out on the writing of this and until I was really deep into it, uh, in fact, until a, a year ago when the, the writing as such was more or less complete, uh, I never considered the fact that it would coincide with these elections. And certainly at that stage, it was impossible to foresee in what direction our political situation would, would develop with Zuma and Mbeki and the, the whole mess that obtained in the course of the last year. So there was nothing deliberate about choosing the date or even the roughly the time of the year. I'd just finished the writing of it, and uh, after several years spent on the writing of it, I just wanted to get rid of it. Yes. The fact that uh, you fought the, f- the fight for, uh, for freedom and democracy and the way that it came to fruition, the great promise and hope that, uh, that Mandela brought and pride that he brought to the country. Well, first of all, I guess corruption is it's just in human nature, mm. which is a great sadness and a great tragedy. Are you feeling too tired to fight this fight to clean up corruption in the country? Sometimes I do. Sometimes it just seems so futile to try and do something which most people in the rest of the world have already come to accept. Although, of course, there is no part of the world where we're free, free from of it. corruption. Exactly. Human nature it is a baggage that we carry with us. It is a, an unfortunate part of the DNA of the human species. <laughs> so I don't think we can get rid of that except that the fact that there are those glorious individuals in many societies who do manage to transcend these limitations and who seem to prove that a human being can be different, Mm. uh, as Mandela was different and still is, although he doesn't really find himself in a position where he can impose any kind of leadership anymore. Although Desmond Tutu, to his credit... He does, but he's much younger than... Yes. And Mandela. Yeah, Mandela is just not capable of it right now, I don't think. No, no, I think he is quite simply too old. I often regretted so much that he couldn't have come to power ten years earlier in his life. Mm -hmm. That would have made all the difference to this country and the direction in which it has gone and and will probably go. Just the the fortitude of the man, though, to be able to stand what he stood for so long and, 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 as you said, well... To come out of that and then lead the country is, uh, yes. in itself is quite a Well, feat, I think isn't we could still count ourselves lucky to have had him, because I think the, the whole situation would have been incomparably worse if we hadn't had him at that stage, at least to introduce us into a new era and to show us some of the possibilities of what uh, democracy could mean. And we, we are that much luckier by having both a Mandela and a Tutu on the scene at the same time, even though the youngest generation in politics doesn't seem to, to appreciate very much what Tutu exactly stands for. 
Yeah, which is, as a foreigner, it's just so surprising that there aren't more young people who have taken up the mantle mm-hmm. for what Mandela stood for and who he was and is. It's just a bit surprising that there isn't... Uh, it is. Can you explain that? No, I think perhaps if one has to try and explain it, Mandela was such a colossus of a figure and for the first few years after he came to power there was the impression that we have made it into democracy and we're going to stay here for keeps because we've got Mandela. One didn't Mm. think of him as a, a simple mortal figure who in fact after the first few years decided that he was going to stand down. If only he had decided to stay on longer then the whole mess of the Mbeki takeover may have developed so much more differently. But then, uh, at the same time, on the purely political level, Mandela wasn't a practical politician. He led by moral example, and in that respect, what he achieved can never really be fully appreciated. Or we're only now beginning, now that we've already tasted a bit of what else it could have turned into. But that was the essence of his leadership, the morality of it, and the, the deep-seated and the deep-rooted sense of justice about how he wanted to, to order the society, not specifically in terms of legislation, in terms of determining foreign relations with other countries and with the big powers and so on and so on. He gave us certain directives, certain possible indications of where we could and should go. But he didn't see it as his task to occupy himself with the the brass tacks of of ruling. And that is perhaps a pity, but I think once he staked out the route, he must have hoped that at least we would know in which direction we could and should go. I'm speaking with Andre Brink, who is the author of many award-winning books and most recently of a memoir entitled Fork in the Road, what is the next hot button for you? What novel could you write now that could have a galvanizing effect on the population? Frankly, I don't know. For the moment, I'm just so relieved to have this <laughs> memoir behind me <laughs> yeah. that I can't wait to get back to fiction. But when I do, and I can already vaguely discern in which direction I would like to go, it has very little to do with what I think could make a difference to the public. It is the act of writing as such, to me, is still essentially, and certainly at the outset of every new work, such a private enterprise that it is really a problem that I'm trying to solve between myself and the blank paper in front of me. Uh, what the possible implications may be, how the public may react to it, what its, its functioning may be in the world, it's not something that would concern me at the outset of it. It's, it's a personal fight that I've got to battle out. Oh, so it's not, it's not written with any kind of intent to, no. to change people's lives then? It's more there's some anger or question within you that wells up? That Absolutely, yes. That motivates you to solve, as you said, yes. the question? Yes. Mm. Uh, for so long, especially during the apartheid years and in the immediate aftermath of that, the particulars of my life, my day-to-day life, and therefore also of my writing, were determined to such a large extent by what was happening around me every day and the realities of how apartheid functioned 
and how the dismantling of apartheid started affecting me as an individual and the people close to me and the country, that inevitably my writing was very deeply bound up with all of that. Just because it, it engaged you so yes, completely? Totally, totally. And that was one of the joys of our changeover at the beginning of the 90s, that suddenly there was a feeling not just of political or social or economic liberation, but of an inner liberation of the mind, so that one could, as a writer, start writing about anything that appealed to one at any given mm. moment. Yeah, in fact, I, I just finished an interview with your publisher, Stephen Johnson, mm -hmm. and that's one of the, the reasons that he posits for the regeneration of the publishing industry in South Africa is that writers no longer were writing against something. They were more just celebrating the fact that they could write about whatever they wanted to. That's right. I think that that was, and to a very large extent still is, a major ingredient of a kind of elation that, in spite of everything that has gone wrong in the country, still carries us along. The feeling that for too long writing and that all creativity in this country had been bound up with writing against something. And I think it can be very harmful to a culture if a whole generation starts thinking of itself purely in terms of what it is against. And now, suddenly, we are making a very obvious and very miraculous discovery that there are actually things one can be for. And that, I think, and I hope, could last us for quite some time to come. We are through those wonderful years of euphoria that followed immediately on the changeover. And however much one might want to uh, remain within that joy, one has to come down to earth at some stage and become more realistic and grasp, grasp a bit more of the enormous and endless complexities of an after a post-liberation feeling. And that very complication, which makes writing more difficult, forces one to go more deeply into the self and into the surrounding world, is fascinating and can keep the mind and the emotions occupied so intensely that I think we have uh, a hell of a lot to write about for many years to come. Yeah, that's it, really. There's a lot of fodder for creativity in this particular country. Oh, yes, mm -hmm. isn't even on days when I am tempted to yield a little bit or briefly to despondency, uh, not quite despair, but despondency certainly. About the, the, the situation the yes. country's in? Yes. Even if that happens, even if there are days of, of gloom when one cannot really escape from this feeling of despondency, yes. at the same time there is the feeling that from the point of view of writing, of engaging oneself in some kind of creativity, whether it be writing or acting or music making or painting or sculpture or whatever, we in South Africa are still in an incredibly fortunate position. Inevitably, so often when I encounter writers elsewhere in the world, I hear them say, God, you are so lucky to have these issues. Look at what we've got to write about. Canada is often seen as a very dull place in which to live and yet I've also heard the flip side of what you've just said from from Germans who mm -hmm. have have said I wish we didn't have so many issues to occupy ourselves with so we could muse on our identity which is what Canada Canadians do yeah but then if you, if you look at your really great writers like Atwood 
they do find such a lot to write about and so totally enthrallingly about one should never underestimate the calm surface of any society but here every, all the issues are so exposed almost too exposed too uh, melodramatically exposed to the view mm. and that is another danger that one can uh, very easily fall into but it is tremendously exciting apart from anything else to know that there are so many things that just cry out to be written about and to be explored and mm. probed and, and tested and whatever. The big three in South Africa, as opposed to the big five, yourself, Nadine Gordimer and J.M. Kotsia. Mm. Kotsia left the country to go live in a, a duller yeah. country, but you're not going to do that. No, it is, it's the old thing, never say never, and one doesn't know how bad things may get mm. after the Zuma takeover. But certainly for as long as it seems possible to me to, to rise to the challenges thrown up by the society, I would hate to be anywhere else. Mm. There is such a tremendous sense of electricity, of adventure, in being involved in a society in this kind of transition with all the terrible things that come with it, that I wouldn't very easily give this up and exchange it for something else. There's just too, also, again, as a foreigner, the pure vitality of living in a country where uh, fabulous flora and fauna mm. exist mm. And, and and the scenery and all, all, the whole environment is, is like a wonderful adventure. Do you take it for granted? I don't think so. I mm. think that, for me, is one of the joys of it, that the place itself doesn't allow you to take it for granted. There are discoveries everywhere and all the time. What kind of discoveries? Just about what issues are involved in in the tiniest phenomenon, in the tiniest little event. You, you open a newspaper and every page, every little, usually the, the, the hidden little things concerning the, the, the everyday occurrences, the, the little fed of of every day, involve so much in terms of meaning of the, the meaning attached to these little surface events, that the sense of discovery, the sense of adventure, remains fresh all the time. If, if I may, uh, can we change gears to, to a more personal uh, question? Uh, you do write movingly about uh, a, a woman, a lover of yours, who was a poet. That relationship, it's, it's been compared to uh, Ted Hughes and Sylvia Plath, and perhaps just because it's literary... Yes. If you can perhaps talk about it, it has such literary, what, not precedence, but uh, it's a thing that an author would do, causing a woman to commit suicide. It's not romantic. <laughs> well, romantic <laughs> in the worst sense of it. It's extreme. In the darkest sense of it, yes. How did that affect you? Well, one didn't think of it in terms of a literary experience then, uh, 40 years ago when it happened. In many respects, it was... This uh, a sort of thing, a relationship between a man and a woman that could happen any time, anywhere, and it was it was the very ordinariness, the very humanity of it, with the the enormity of the problems that came with it, simply from the fact that I was married at the time and that she was in a relationship and she had had an had been forced by a previous lover to have an abortion and she had this little girl, an exquisite little thing. 
and that the very fact of the relationship placed us in a kind of territory within the very Calvinist Afrikaner society which made it represent, uh, reprehensible and something from the devil or something of darkness and whatever whereas to us inevitably it was an experience of lightness and liberation and all that but at the same time it was very often a very dark experience too because she was constantly living on the edge very close to a sort of borderline personality inviting catastrophe as it were and it was this tremendous the width of the mood swings that she could undergo in itself I suppose today they might be able to give her a couple of pulls and everything would be much easier to control in those days it was not so easy and it was much more frightening and certainly much more unpredictable but it, it also heightened the the sense of drama in the relationship one could never be sure from one day to the next how she would react to certain things and were you in love with her do you think like oh, profoundly totally yeah. absolutely totally mm. Mm. it was the first real love affair of my life and uh, I was very inexperienced a real callow youth and it came with such an intensity that it, it overwhelmed me completely I was simply not sophisticated enough, experienced enough to to handle it. And yeah, I don't, I don't know if sophistication or experience allows well, one to prepare. Well, it's never completely, no. But yeah. if I'd had a whole string of relationships before mm. that, mm. I might have been slightly better equipped to deal with that, but I simply hadn't. I was uh, fed to the lines, as it were, and that was the very joy of it. And the, mm. the, 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 that the intensity of this connection. Yes. The ecstasies and the agonies were all so extreme that it did become, after a while, almost unbearable to, to handle it all. But it, at the same time, it was a kind of intoxication. It mm -hmm. was a kind of yeah. uh, high that one was constantly forced to, to live in. Would you say to be loved in a way that you'd always dreamt of being loved? Absolutely. And uh, in, in ways way beyond anything I could have dreamt of before. So, yes, that intensity which you speak about, that was certainly there that characterized it all the way. But then it had a downside. that It was so totally exhausting because it was so demanding that uh, at that time I wouldn't have uh, exchanged it for anything else because there was this intense experience of really being alive, yeah. fully and totally alive yeah. every moment. It's almost as if life, when you're not in that state there's an effort that's required but oh. when you're in that state nothing matters because that's it's right. just yes. wonderful but at the same time the sense of the wonderful always brings an awareness of the underlying darkness and, and everything was uh, so interwoven one episode which I think is in the memoir uh, when one evening she after hours of raging and fighting and arguing she just suddenly said well I'm going out now I'm going to jump in front of the first car and by then I was so bloody tired and I'd heard this so often that she said well fuck off and do that and then she went out and after an hour she returned was brought back by a stranger in front of whose car she had actually jumped talk about exhausting oh that was utterly emotionally draining 
But then after, the simultaneous high and low of mm, it. The making up. Oh, yes. And after that, I had to leave very early the next morning to drive a, a, a thousand kilometers back to where I live, Grahamstown. After I'd gone to sleep from sheer exhaustion, she went to sit outside on the little balcony of the flat and wrote one of the most sublime poems that she'd ever produced. Uh, Which one was that? Do you recall? Uh, plant me a tree. Uh, a sort of vision of a totally blissful future. Two lovers together with the little dog and with, 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 with the squirrels outside collecting the, the nuts and keeping them against the coming winter and things like that. So this uh, ability that she had to turn even the most abysmal experience into pure bliss, into pure a vision of pure happiness and ecstasy, uh, that kept one enthralled, of course, inevitably. So when she did commit suicide, you were still in love with her then? No, that was, that was over. Oh, okay. It was something that had been coming a long time. Uh, it had been threatening us for a long time. And then it happened... Uh, both of us, in fact, got involved in other relationships. I see. Okay. And uh, so, thankfully, it wasn't something that you weren't at the peak, no, no. and it was cut from underneath you. It didn't oh, no, happen that, that, that way. That would have been yeah. really unbearable. Mm -hmm. So the the aspect of guilt was not in the foreground right then. I didn't have the feeling that I'd driven her to this. Yes. Because there had been an intervening period. Mm -hmm. But still, uh, the the shock, hearing that she had died, that she drowned herself, she who could swim like a fish. It, it reminds me of one of the most inexplicable things that one can imagine, that how she could have walked into the sea and died. She, she probably was drugged or something, or drunk or whatever, which made her incapable of really saving herself. But one knows that the body apparently has these reflexes, that you can't just drown. The body itself resists. But uh, she died, and... Uh, did you work that through in some sort of catharsis uh, in your writing? Oh yes, I tried in, in several ways, really sublimating it in a variety of ways. And there have been many other people who tried the same, looked at it from outside, thought it was a nice dramatic or melodramatic story and wanted to turn it into certainly a lot of poems and uh, stories. And there have in recent times been attempts of uh, turning it into a film, a number of films, fortunately nothing of that has <laughs> materialized yet. But I deliberately stayed out of that for the last 40 years. I didn't want to get drawn into the, the public fuss surrounding her death, especially since she became a sort of iconic figure, since uh, Mandela quoted one of her poems at the opening of his first session of Parliament. Again, what was her first name? Ingrid. Ingrid. Yonker. When you spoke last night at the uh, at the book lounge in Cape Town, you you referenced uh, Nabokov briefly, and uh, one of the things that struck me was I, I had no idea that you started off writing just in Afrikaans, mm. and in fact that the uh, looking on darkness was was banned, mm. and it was your desire to 
show the rest of the world that there's more to this country than just the apartheid regime. Mm. And also that there was more to the Afrikaans language. Because so many people at the time thought of it as and, and, and uh, condemned it as the language of apartheid. And so even after I started writing in English after that, I also continued to write in Afrikaans simply to prove that this language itself could be a language of contestation and of rebellion. The interesting thing I found was that, that Nabokov knew the English language better than oh. most English-speaking mother tongue. Yes. And seems to me that you coming to the language as your second language, the English language, you may well have a better grasp on it than most writers. I think it's the very fact that it is not the mother tongue, that one doesn't take anything, no syllable of it for granted, mm. that everything still retains a sense of, of discovery in it. And mm -hmm. uh, that just keeps it fascinating. You, you continue to publish your works yes. in both languages, oh, and yes. you, you write... That you don't translate? No, it is a really a matter of writing every book twice. Yeah. Because uh, that also means that there's no set pattern to that. I don't, for instance, always start writing the first version in Afrikaans and then write the English one or the other way around. Very often it's a matter of doing one chapter in one language and the next chapter in another. Or sometimes I write uh, the dialogue in one language and the descriptive passages in another. So... It really means that I have to tune my ear into what it seems to me the novel is demanding, this particular novel is demanding. What are, is there other traits mm -hmm. or topics or feelings that are better expressed in one language than the other? It's very difficult to say. I've, if one can generalize, well, that is dangerous territory. Uh, perhaps English is still more astute at being tuned into abstract or philosophical discussions or whatever and Afrikaans particularly well suited to uh, the more concrete descriptions of, of landscape or whatever but this can, can uh, shift so quickly in one paragraph there may be moments when Afrikaans works better and moments when English works better and uh, at least once there was a conscious series of decisions involved in a novel called uh, A Chain of Voices where I literally have 30 different narrators and they speak not just alternately in Afrikaans and English but they do use both languages among a lot of them and there for instance I could it's a novel about a slave rebellion in the 1830s you assume the, the voice of a black... Oh, yes, young, yeah. of all, the male, female, mm. black, white. And in fact, this was brought up again last night when you talked about how Picasso toyed with all sorts of different materials and collage and chopping up bodies and... There's a rather sense of joy that goes with that almost childlike, almost playful way of interacting with the material mm. that has constantly fascinated me. And you still have that fascination? Oh, yes. Which is great, I mean... It's Otherwise I would simply stop writing, it would become too bloody boring. But it hasn't. No, I, I have to keep it interesting and unpredictable to myself. Do you uh, seek out special kinds of odd dictionaries? Sometimes it's necessary to get a, a dictionary for a particular dialect or a particular period or whatever. I just picked up a, a, a slang dictionary for World War uh, by Eric Partridge. That sort of thing, yes. That can be immensely useful. 
simply by getting hold of a dictionary like that, paging through it and picking mm. up things at random, uh, that can keep one busy for, for days in its own right, and then later it finds its place in something we write. It's interesting how black hip-hop and gangsters have so thoroughly influenced the language of my Canadian daughters. <laughs> it's it's odd how that oh, yes, yes. spreads throughout the world. And oh, I and certainly find in South Africa now with the, the language of the gangsters on the Cape Flats, for instance, and, or in, 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 in certain of the townships in Johannesburg, how that has spread from those nuclei to cover the whole country. And there are wonderful things in, in that language. Just in, in closing, uh, a couple things. We talked about the sexual interaction between the races and the fact that the, Afrika well, the Afrikaners were terrified or frantic about this. Mm. And, and yet it makes appearances, in certainly in your work and Kotsia's work as well, mm. uh, quite frequently. And Gordimer. And Gordimer. This sort of underlying taboo, because it's such a powerful instinct, mm. Mm. it underlies so much of existence in the country. Oh, certainly. And it has characterized so much of relations on the personal level among the different race groups and cultural groups. And uh, I have, I've for a very long time been fascinated by the 18th century, especially as the great century of slavery in the country. And to see to what extent miscegenation and relations between masters and servants, masters and slaves, belonging to different race groups, to what an extent that has influenced the whole development of race relations in this country. In fact, I think that the, the first novel that I'm maybe moving towards now will again deal with that period of slavery, in that through a very good friend of mine I discovered that not direct ancestor, but the brother of a direct ancestor owned that particular farm, India in the western province, in the early 19th century. And he had several children with a young slave woman. And that at, at one stage, when uh, his parents wanted him to marry a decent, prosperous young girl from the next farm, he had to get rid of this family of his and decently sold his children. Like the mayor of Casterbridge, wasn't there something? That's right, well, that was the wife. Mm -hmm. But yet yeah, it was mainly the children. There is something so amazing about what must have hovered below the surface. Mm. Well, the, the pain, of, oh, you would think. Absolutely. I mean, and the fact that's the, the question I would come to is, if you're at all human mm. and you, you uh, are attracted to someone of the opposite sex who's another color, mm. speaking of tension between cool. love and duty, I suppose, which mm. brings us full circle, treating someone as a human being... Mm as someone you want to be with. There must have been a lot of that. that oh, uh, oh, yes. And yet, they didn't... You know, it was almost a tacit thing. You know, there's lots of mm. sexual relationships taking place. Oh, yes. Wouldn't they want to be together all the time? Certainly, for some of them, that must have been a very, very agonizing reality. And that has come with the South African population from the very beginning uh, of uh, colonialism mid-17th century, so 
there must have been such a lot of that, and I think it's inevitable that that constantly uh, filters through into the novelist's consciousness, and that one has to return to that, because in a way that underlies everything our whole society has been built on. So it, it needs constant revisiting, constant reevaluation, constant facing. Because, as you say, the laws were trying to stamp that out. Oh, yes. And mm. in the period before official apartheid, when it was not illegal, but was frowned on, especially by the church, but people were freer, perhaps, to express themselves sexually uh, across these rigorous, otherwise rigorous lines, you faced all kinds of more subtle forms of censorship. They couldn't uh, throw you in jail for it or persecute you openly. But there were certainly ways any civilized community found to uh, express its condemnation. And, and just think of a white woman getting pregnant. Oh, yes. yes. I suppose they just shipped them off somewhere. To a large extent they did, yes. Mm. yes. Or then she was forced to join the underclass and uh, become an ally of of the black slaves or the, 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 uh, the imported slaves imported from uh, Malaysia or wherever. But the, the suffering in terms of human deprivation there must have been almost unimaginable. And of course it's a wonderful attraction for the writer's dirty mind. And the publishers love it too, that kind of <laughs> sexual tension. I think they do, yes, mm-hmm. yes. My final question has to do with wine. I wonder if you could recommend... I understand you've written quite extensively on it, and I imagine you've consumed some quantities. Is there a particular grape that you think is... There's one variety that is very specific to South Africa. It is called uh, Pinotage. It's a familiar Pinot Noir, which is blended. It was no longer blended. They, They created a variety in which it was mixed with Hermitage, one of the rather common French red ones. And so, so they call it Pinotage, a red, a very generous wine, chocolatey and rich, and I think it's some of the one, most wonderful wines of the country, red wines, are made of that particular variety. But uh, I think it's precisely the enormous spectrum of wines that we have that are beginning to uh, come into their own now for a very long time. Everybody accepted the first only French wines and then of course California and Australia and uh, Chile and Chile, oh yes became very very important and and South Africa in the last few decades I think has started catching up very quickly with the rest of the world so that is a very exciting part of our agricultural and simply our, our, our landscape world and another good reason to stay here very good reason yes Thank you so much for your time. Well, thank you. Delightful conversation. I'm glad it worked out.